Welcome to the teaching ministry of Magnolia's First. To learn more, visit m1bc.org. We'll be in John chapter 16, starting in verse 16, and it's quite a chunk. Uh, but I'm going to start out reading the passage, and then we'll, we'll look at where we're going with this this morning. Starting in verse 16, Jesus speaking says this. It says, in a little while, you won't see me anymore. But a little while after that, you will see me again. Some of the disciples asked each other, what does he mean when he says, in a little while, you won't see me? but then you'll see me, and I'm going to the Father. And what does he mean by a little while? We don't understand. Jesus realized that they wanted to ask him about it, so he said, are you asking yourselves what I meant? I said in a little while you won't see me, but a little while after that you will see me again. I tell you the truth, you will weep and mourn over what is going to happen to me, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will suddenly turn into joy. It will be like a woman suffering the pains of labor. When her child is born, her anguish gives way to joy because she's brought a baby into the world. So you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. Then you will rejoice and no one can rob you of that joy. At that time, you won't need to ask me anything. I tell you the truth, you will ask the Father directly, and he will grant you your request because you use my name. You haven't done this before. Ask using my name, and you will receive. And you will receive, you will have abundant joy. I have spoken, in these, I have spoken these matters in figures of speech, but soon I will stop speaking figuratively and I will tell you plainly about the Father. Then you will ask in my name. I'm not saying I'll ask the Father in your behalf, for the Father himself loves you dearly because you love me and believe that I came from God. Yes, I came from the Father into the world, and now I will leave the world and return to the Father. Then his disciples said, at last, you're speaking plainly and not figuratively. Now we understand that you know everything, and there's no need to question you. From this we believe that you came from God. Jesus asked, do you finally believe? But the time is coming, indeed it's here now, when you will be scattered, each one going his own way, leaving me alone. Yet I'm not alone because the Father is with me. I have told you all of this, so that in me you may have peace. Here in the world, you'll have many trials and sorrows, but take heart, because I've overcome the world. The ultimate topic of the passage, very long passage, but the ultimate topic of the passage, Jesus is explaining that he's fixing to be departing from the disciples, that he's going to return again, but he will be leaving. And he explains that the manner by which he is leaving is going to be in a way that's going to leave the disciples in a lot of anguish and sorrow. There will be a lot of mourning. And so ultimately the topic I wanted to talk about today out of this passage is is an age-old philosophical question, right? And probably one of the greatest philosophical questions that people hold against uh, the God of the Bible, and it's this. 
If God is good, then why is there suffering? Now, I'm not going to say that contextually Jesus is answering that question in the passage, but Jesus is talking about his death and resurrection, and we will find through the death and resurrection a very beautiful answer to that question. Because where the, where the turmoil seems to come in is people would say things along the lines of this. Okay, biblically it's proclaimed that God is good, and yet what we see is evil in the world. So that means one of two things. Either God is good and he is not all-powerful and therefore could not prevent evil, or God is all-powerful, he's just not actually that good. And this is actually a dilemma that if you know uh, C.S. Lewis, he was a he was an ancient literature scholar, uh, but C.S. Lewis was, a, was an atheist for a long period of time, and his primary argument for atheism, he wrote a, he wrote a book uh, called The Problem of Pain, very difficult to understand, but he wrote a book called The Problem of Pain, and in the introduction, he makes an argument as to why he was once an atheist. And I'm going to tell you right now, as I rounded the end of the introduction of the book, I was almost an atheist. Like, I mean, he, he made the argument so powerful and he explained how it was so hard to believe in a good and all-powerful God when our world is this one planet that we know of that can actually inhabit life and everything outside of the world in our universe is just chaotic freezing temperatures that can't sustain life and no oxygen, too much gravity, not enough gravity, you know, like everything is insane. But then you even come into our planet where there is life and all you find is life killing life, right? And you're talking about a man who grew up and was raised through World War I and II. Watching concentration camps and complete genocide of a people group. C.S. Lewis saw it all. And so he was determined that the evil and the suffering within our created order was evident enough that there could not be a God in heaven. But then he realized something. By what standard could he ever call something evil unless there was an objective standard of good to measure it against? He said his own argument turned upside down itself. And in that one sentence, I was like, I'm a believer again, right? Like, I'm excited. Because he had me. I'm like, I don't have an answer for that. And C.S. Lewis says the very fact that you beg the question says that there must be an existence of an objective standard of good. A creator of all things. He says you could never, ever determine a line crooked unless you had a straight line to measure it against. And so we're here in John chapter 16, and the disciples are in the midst of turmoil. The guy they've given three years of their life to, and I don't just mean like they met with him daily. I mean, they left everything to follow him. A disciple in the first century meant you give up everything, and this is the dude that you live with and give everything that you have to. And so they're giving their whole lives to following Jesus, and now he's at this place of saying, hey, I'm fixing to roll out, right? And they're like, wait a minute. Like, that's not how discipleship and mentorship works. Like, you don't leave us. 
And so they've got a million questions going through their head, and there's a lot of pain, and it's not helping that not only is he saying he's leaving, but again, the manner that he's leaving is going to leave them in agony. And so their, their response to what Jesus is telling them is pain. It's pain. It's abandonment. It's confusion. But then Jesus closes up in chapter 16. And just so you know, as, as we're going through this series, we're, we're following the timeline to the crucifixion, right? And as we talked about last week, this is Jesus' last conversation with his disciples where he's sharing everything with them. And verse 33 is the last verse before chapter 17 when the high priestly prayer begins. So you could consider verse 33 the end of the conversation, right? And this is what Jesus says. I have told you all of this so that you may have peace in me. In this world, you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I've overcome the world. Jesus says, I've told you all this, starting in chapter 14, disciples, I've told you all these things in these previous chapters so that you would understand, in this world you will have suffering, but in me you will have peace. In me you will have peace. And so our big idea today is this. Following Christ offers hope in the midst of despair. Not that following Christ removes despair, but that following Christ offers hope in the midst of it, right? Mourning and despair is a normal thing because this world is not as it should be. So if you're not having mourning and sorrow and things like that in your life, then I'm afraid you're not living in a line with the reality that we're in. But there can be hope inside of that. But in order to do that, I want to I identify three things really quickly that tend to muddy up our vision when it comes to following Jesus Christ. Three things, and it's this. Number one, following Jesus may not look how you expected. Two, much of our anguish is due to our misconceptions. Not all of, but much of our anguish is due to our misconceptions. And then three, Knowing the value of Jesus will overcome our circumstances. First point, following Jesus may not look how you expected. Uh, in verse 20 of our passage, Jesus was very clear that the way that he's going to be leaving is going to leave them in a lot of sorrow. And you, now... I will, I will give them this. I believe that the disciples and Jesus were truly friends. I do believe that. I'm not saying that they had just horrible motives. But I also think that the disciples had a misconception of what it would look like to follow the Lord. And the reason I believe that is because the first century Jewish culture in general believed that when the Messiah came, he would be a victorious militant ruler, right? They, they weren't quite grasping how the coming Messiah would be a suffering servant. They only understood him 
to be this mighty warrior that would come through and he would conquer the surrounding nations and he would free oppressed Israel from all of the tyranny that was around it. And so as far as the disciples have known, Jesus has proclaimed and shown himself to be the Messiah and they've given their lives to him and now all of a sudden he's going, by the way, I'm about to go to death. Right? He's not just saying, I'm going to leave, like I'm going to move to another country. He's about to be betrayed, imprisoned, and executed. The Messiah. And so they're going, what? Like this isn't what we've been building our lives upon. The past three years have not been set upon you getting betrayed and killed. And us being scattered and without nothing, right? Like they're, they're confused because ultimately what they had for three years, they're with the Messiah. They have security, right? I mean, not only could he just with a snap of a fingers lay a whole room dead, but he could raise the dead and he could cast out demons and he could heal sickness. Like the amount of faith, he was far, he far surpassed just the ability to conquer tyrannic nations. He could conquer death the demonic. And so they're like, man, we're basically invincible. And not only that, in the midst of, of a whole culture of religious hypocrisy, Jesus gave teachings that were fixated on authority. In other words, rabbis and scholars and scribes and Pharisees would come along and they would, they would stand their teaching on so-and-so said this. Great Rabbi John said this, whereas Jesus would get up and say, well, here's what I say. Jesus would take the Ten Commandments of the Old Testament and say, here's what I say to you about their application, not here's what someone else says. Jesus gave the authority as though he's the very lawgiver himself. And so not only did he have authority, but he had answers in every single situation. And so it's like the disciples had endless wisdom. Like, imagine that. Imagine having somebody that could tell you every mistake you're fixing to make. I'd be relieved. And with all that came something else that these guys had never had. You have to understand, Jesus called a bunch of fishermen and tax collectors to himself. They had status. They had something honorable to be known for. They weren't just the mediocre of the culture anymore. They weren't just the scumbags. And now everything that they were gaining is fixing to be lost. They felt like they had built a pretty good life for themselves following Jesus. And now they're fixing to lose it all. And how often is it for us that we beg that same question and what a shame it is that men stand behind pulpits and tell people that if they follow Jesus, he's going to fix their life and take away their troubles. They preach a Jesus that is not the Jesus of the Bible. Jesus promises suffering. And, and to some degree, you could go, I don't know if that's a Jesus I want to follow. Listen, no matter whether you follow Jesus or not, you're going to encounter suffering. That's what this world is full of. That's why there's so many non-believers. Jesus promises hope in the midst of our despair, and he promises suffering, which honestly, if I see a Messiah that says, hey, you're definitely gonna suffer, I can go, well, he's not wrong, because I am. But so often, 
how many times for you guys? It happens to me all the time. Like, I am an idolater. I don't know if you know that. Like, I build little idols all the, not literally, but little, my heart builds little idols that I want to revolve around. And one of them is life going the way that I want it to. And sometimes when it doesn't, I pitch my fist at the heaven and I yell and I'm like, I've served you! You know, like, even though he's given me the heartbeat and the, the oxygen in my lungs to be able to do so and the ability to move, but I've given him so much, right? And I'm like, how dare you? How dare God not give me what I have been laboring so hard for? And all the while, nowhere in Scripture does it say, well, if you just serve him, he'll make you so prosperous and take away all your problems. How many times is it people need to hear that you're going to follow Jesus and you're going to suffer? Possibly worse than you did before. But know this, that the one you're claiming to believe has already said it would happen. You can trust him in it. And so people try to win people to Jesus by promising a good life. The problem is what you win them with is what you win them to. You promise a bunch of people prosperity. Jesus was never their God. Prosperity was. Jesus was just their way to get to it. And that's a sad reality. And I think the disciples were mixed up thinking that they would have a certain outcome. And they weren't getting it. But they did encounter something so much greater. And so understand, following Jesus may not look how you expected. But I promise you in the end, it'll be far greater than what you ever could have imagined. Secondly, much of our anguish is due to our misconceptions. Now, I want to I wanna make a distinction between anguish as in mourning the death of a loved one or a separation or, you know, it, those, are, those are normal and healthy things to do. But I want to talk about our anguish in so many circumstances of life. Primarily, what I had just spoken of in the sense that we set these bizarre and crazy expectations as to what life should be like, and then when we don't get it, Right? And I don't want to say disappointment. I work in youth ministry, and so I know a lot of people who, who labor for academics and labor for sports and all these various things, and you work really hard and then you don't get it. And listen, disappointment is okay, right? Like you tried really hard, it didn't work. Man, it's okay to be upset about that. But there's a difference in disappointment and despair when it's woeful, right? Like the whole world has ended because you didn't get the woman you wanted. Life cannot move on any longer. There's a gigantic difference in disappointment and despair. And so let's talk about what we tend to gain despair over. And ultimately, it's that we have built an ideology to life that isn't really what was ever promised. If you look also in verse 20, something Jesus says when he talks about the disciples mourning he says, you'll mourn the world. They're going to rejoice. They're going to be excited that I'm gone, right? And when we say the world, we're not just talking about the people out doing drugs and smoking and prostitutes. We're also talking about the religious leaders of the day. I don't know if you know this, but the primary people responsible for the crucifixion of our Messiah were the religious leaders of the day, right? They were the textbook Christians as we would consider them today. And it's bizarre 
Because I think about that text and I go, why would the world be rejoicing? And it dawned on me. Because Jesus confronts everything about them. Right? If they're, listen, if they're, if they're the, the cult prostitute, and what they do is they serve worship to the pagan deities through prostitution, Jesus is coming along and he's confronting that lifestyle. He's confronting their outright sin. And you have two responses that could be to that, right? Jesus comes along and says, hey, the way that you're living life is wrong and it should be lived. This is what true life looks like. You have two responses. You can say, you know what? This guy's right and I'm going to follow him. Or you can say, get him out of here, crucify him, I'm done. Jesus never left room for gray areas. He was very clear. He was very clear. There's two paths of life, not several. There's two. One leads to life. One leads to destruction. Their sin is being confronted, but then for the religious leaders of the day. Like I think about myself in ministry, uh, you know, very self-conscious in a lot of areas. And how often someone new might come along and I'm like, these dudes are stepping on my turf, right? Everybody comes to me for the answers and I'm the guy that gets up charismatic and yells crazy and gets everybody. Like that's me, nobody's coming on my turf and doing that. And you've got these religious leaders, they've got all the authority and all the persuasion and all the prestige that comes along with their holy living. And now Jesus comes along and he overturns all of it. And not only that, calls him out in it. He's like, man, you just do this for praise. And I'm like, man, if somebody said that to me, I'd be like, oh, because there's a large degree that's true. It's a battle every time I get up here because I want praise from people. But then at the same time, I really want Christ to be praised. Ultimately, what Jesus does by his very nature, without even his teaching, but by his very nature, Jesus shatters our idols and our ideologies. And so in a lot of instances, we're just like the crowds when Jesus was before Pilate. We shout out, crucify him. Because we're the Christians of the 21st century, right? We can build a more modern Jesus. I was watching the second American gospel not too long ago, and there's this point. I, I, no documentaries ever made me so angry. But there's this point where this guy is explaining, he says, hey, if you can come up, if you can dream up a better God than the one you're worshiping, then it's time to trade up. And I'm like, what? That's literally Romans 1. Paul says that they that the wicked people, right? People who hate God, they suppress the truth of God with unrighteousness and they create gods in their own image. This guy is literally saying, hey, instead of worshiping any objective reality of God, find a God that best suits you, build a glorified version of yourself and bow down to him daily. But how often is that all of us, when the very nature and words of Jesus Christ confront our sin 
or they confront our approval addiction. And so we want to trade him up. We want Barabbas. Get rid of Jesus. We want someone who's okay with what we do, not who confronts it. Third, knowing the value of Jesus will overcome our circumstances. Now, this is an important one, and I'm not going to lie. It kind of threw me for a loop for a minute because I was like, I don't really know how to hit that. But I was so enamored by verse 24. Uh, Verse 24, Jesus is explaining that anything they ask the Father, the Father is going to give them. Anything they ask the Father, the Father will give to them. And I, I I was kind of blown away by that. And the reason is because I thought about, if you read the book of Acts, which follows John, right? You read the book of Acts, it's what the apostles did after Jesus' ascension and his giving of the Holy Spirit, and they're all tortured horribly, right? I mean, they're, they're beaten and killed and fed to lions and crazy stuff, crucified upside down. Like, I just hear this stuff, and I'm like, man, that, the first century believers were, were dipped in oil and hung on torches and, and lit on fire, right? I'm like, this is insane. And then I go, man, they could have prayed for anything. And the Father would have given it. And what they never prayed for is that they wouldn't suffer, they wouldn't be martyred. Instead, what they prayed for is more opportunity to preach the very message that kept offending the people. And they kept doing it over and over and over. Why? Because they understood the value, the worthiness of the one whom they worshipped, Jesus Christ, the one whom they had followed. And Jesus knew they're all about to betray him. He says it toward the end of of the chapter. But he also knew that when the Holy Spirit was given, when he resurrected from the grave and they saw it, man, they were going to be sold out. All the way to the point of their own death. And I remember even, like, let's get outside of the, the, the apostles for a second. I remember the first time I really sat down and read Job. Like, I don't know if you've ever read the book of Job, but man, that dude went through some stuff. Like, I don't want that in my life. I get restless leg syndrome at night, and I'm like cursing the heavens, right? I mean, he had his whole family taken from him, other than his wife, who was a nagging wife. That's not meant to be said against all women, but I couldn't imagine, right? You're in all this turmoil, your kid's killed, you're covered in boils, and you have a wife that's constantly nagging you on top of that. And I'm like, I don't get it. Like, I don't know how he did it. And he does get to the point, listen, he got to the edge where he's about to just be like, God, and so he's questioning God's righteousness and his justice to the point where God shows up on the scene. You know what's most interesting to me? At the end of the story, Job says, hey, I've heard of you, but now I see you. And I put my hand over my mouth and I repent in dust and ashes. I'm the fool. But you know what's weird about that? God never actually answered Job's question as to why he was suffering. And yet the revelation of the person of God sufficed. Job didn't need an answer anymore because he saw glory beyond any comprehension. Knowing the value of our God will change everything. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, Peter says this. He says, by his divine power, God's, by his divine power, God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. We have received all of this by coming to know him, the one who called us to himself by means of his marvelous glory and excellence. You know what Peter doesn't say? 
He doesn't say he's given you everything you need for life and godliness through your friend group or through your family or through your parents or through your children or through your career or through your neighborhood or your house or your white picket fence or your 10 cars. That's not how he did it. How did he give you every single thing you need for life and godliness? Through the knowledge of him, the acquainted knowledge of him. You have been given everything that you need for life and godliness. There is nothing else. And any time we try to add anything to it, we say God is not sufficient. That's idolatry. And we're so prone to it. The apostles could have asked for anything they wanted, but they had the acquainted knowledge of God, the presence of the Holy Spirit and the resurrected Jesus Christ, and they went gladly straight into death because he's worthy. If we know him, it will overcome every one of our circumstances. The question is, where is the location of your treasure? Where is your kingdom ultimately? Because for the apostles, it was found in Matthew 6.21, when Jesus says, wherever your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Their entire treasure and their entire kingdom was built upon the fact that Christ was going to be returning in his kingdom, and that's where they belonged, not here. And when we believe that, we can even say with Paul in Philippians 1.21, that to live is only to live for Christ and to die, man, that's only gain. So then we have to ask the question, what about your pain right now? What about your suffering right now, right? Okay, so maybe we've got some misconceptions, maybe we've got some, some off patterns here, but what do we do about the thing that we have now and where is God's answer for that? Here's what I can tell you. I can tell you two things. One, I'll give you an image that I heard from Jesse that he heard from somebody else. I gave him credit for a long time, but apparently he got it from somebody else. Imagine for a second that I brought you in this room, right? We just painted an entire painting on this entire wall, whole giant mural. And I bring you in here, blindfolded, you've yet to see it, and I walk you up and I put your nose on that wall. I take the blindfold off and I say, all right, explain to us what you see. You'd go, see some blue, maybe some red, like you, maybe you can make out something right here in front of your eyes, but ultimately your nose that close to the wall, you can't make out much. Let me just say this. Imagine that entire wall and the whole thing as a mural, as the whole timeline of history. The entire brevity of your life is what you can see right here. You cannot make out the entirety of the painting because you're far too close to it. And in the same way, you will not be able to always comprehend what God is doing because what God does is on a grand scale. And so you can't gauge the entirety of the existence and completely demote the person of God because you have a circumstance that is poor. Just because you can't see the whole picture does not mean that the entirety of it is bad. But secondly, let me also say this. I wish that I could give you an exact reason for every terrible thing that happens in your life. I really do. I don't know what the answer is. 
but I can promise you what the answer is not. The answer is not that he does not care. The answer is not that he is not involved. And here's how I know that, objectively, objectively know that. Because our God is the only God in all of the history of religion who entered into his own timeline and to his own suffering world and bore upon himself the most ultimate suffering as he was hung on a tree separated from the grace and the goodness of his father and crushed under the wrath. How can I know for a fact that he cares in every single one of our moments, every single circumstance? It's because he entered into it. He encountered temptation in the same exact way every one of us did. He abstained from giving in, but then went to the ultimate death and punishment of a criminal, even though he did nothing to deserve it. I can know that our God loves us so much because he came into our suffering, and not only that, he took my suffering upon himself. And yours too. And so we believe him for it. And so let me close with three things in consideration of the three things I just told you. And they go off of those three things, so don't think it's three new things. Number one, keep in mind that your relationship with Jesus is not earned, but it's given freely. Now that's important. Because if your relationship with God, if your relationship with Jesus is given freely and you have done nothing to earn it, then you cannot call to him and say, wait, why are you doing this to me? I did X, Y, Z. You see, everything he's given you, including today, including the fact that you were able to wake up this morning, is given to you by grace. You have done nothing to deserve it. Which means you cannot call in favors. He does not owe you anything. Secondly, Identify what you're looking to gain out of what you're expecting. Here's what I mean by that. For my own self as an example, when I'm back there every day, Wednesdays, Sundays, anytime I preach, I'm constantly going, Daniel, why are you nervous? Well, I'm nervous because I don't want to get up there and mess up. I'm nervous because I don't want to get up there and get off track. I'm nervous because I don't want to get up there and my pants fall down. You know, whatever. I don't know. But then I'm going, okay, well, why is that what I'm so nervous about? Well, because ultimately what I want is I want you people to like me and think that I'm amazing. And so what's my expectation? My expectation is that he would decrease so I could increase. It's so opposite of what the scripture teaches that we should be decreasing so that he, he can increase. You identify what you're expecting to gain so that you can recognize, recognize idols and utterly smash them. And so I sit back there and I go, what's it matter if I'm utterly embarrassed and nobody tracks with my entire sermon and they forget my big idea, but I said one sentence that glorified Jesus Christ and they repented and believed the gospel. I'm nothing but a mouthpiece. That's it. Lastly, identify where your treasure is most fixated. Are you laboring for a kingdom here? 
If so, you will inevitably lose it in the end. You came into this world with nothing, you will leave this world with nothing. You will have nothing to show for. And so in all of the kingdom building that you're doing, your best bet, your best investment, would be building the kingdom of heaven here until the day Jesus Christ brings it in full. And if we believe that that kingdom is coming in full, then shouldn't that be our main target anyways? Following Christ will offer hope in the midst of despair. But we have to be making sure to break down every little deceptive idol along the way that allures us into destructive paths. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your truth. We thank you that in a world where we can, we can be so blinded and so blurried, so muddied up by suffering and anger, that our emotions are so close to the things that we experience. Father, that you have a bigger vision. That in all of our suffering, you bring about good. That even from the entrance of sin into the world, so was the Lamb of God crucified before the foundation of the world. That through our destruction, we get to see the greatest act of love, the Son of God laying down his life on a cross for us. And so, Lord, I pray that as Paul wrote in Romans 5, that you, through your Holy Spirit, would shed abroad your love in our hearts, that we would be overwhelmed and undone with your glory so that the things of this world, like Isaiah, would be undone to us. That this world, with all of its pleasures and passions, would be crucified as we live unto Christ. But that comes by your power, through your Holy Spirit. Something that we can't muster in ourselves. And so haunt us with that truth and bring it to life by your powerful hand. For your name's sake, amen. Y'all have a great week.